Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Greetings and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program sponsored by the Holly Street Church of Christ in Denver, Colorado. You've got your two regular co-hosts with you today, Jeff and Brian. Good morning, Brian. How are you doing today? Hey, good morning, Jeff. Looking forward to answering some Bible questions. Well, yeah. And uh, as we've mentioned, you know, the website's been in existence for well over 20 years. And despite that long length of time, uh, we still get lots of questions related to a very diverse set of uh, topics from literally people a whole around the planet. Uh, from time to time, uh, what we like to do is sort of look back across recently submitted questions and see if we can detect, uh, if you will, a theme, and then gather questions related to that theme together uh, and make a podcast out of them. And that's what we're going to do today. So uh, Brian kind of went back through some of the uh, questions and found a, a pretty fair number that were related to miracles. Um, miracles, miracle-working uh, abilities, modern-day miracles, etc. So that's where we're going to kind of focus our uh, podcast on today. Uh, I've got a few introductory remarks, and then we'll actually get into the uh, questions that Brian found. But before we do that, Brian, did you have any uh, introductory comments? Yeah, I look forward to this one, because certainly there are many people that believe that miracles uh, still happen today, if you will. And then there are also others who just don't really understand like in the Bible, why certain miracles were performed or were there limitations and so forth. So we try to just come up with a mixture of questions to really kind of cover that spectrum on miracles. Uh, so look forward to it. Cool. Okay, okay. So let's just get into it. So first of all, what is a miracle? Now, that's where things immediately kind of get kind of interesting. You know, generally speaking, from a biblical perspective and kind of depending on the translation uh, that you use, uh, there's all different kinds of words that are closely related to, you know, the concept of miracles. Of course, that word is found. Signs, mighty works, wonders. Uh, and in general, they all refer to various acts that allegedly either suspend or violate natural laws in some kind of a supernatural way. Uh, the creation, you know, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Uh, the ten plagues in Egypt at the beginning of the book of Exodus, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, the long day of Joshua's time, recorded in Joshua chapter 10. Of course, a large number uh, connected with the New Testament, including the virgin birth of Jesus, uh, him feeding the 5,000, walking on water, uh, John chapter 6. And of course, the, one of the, the classic examples, you know, resurrection of the dead. Uh, to include Lazarus in John 11, and of course, Jesus himself, you know, after his crucifixion. Now, I used a word, uh, hopefully you, the listeners picked up on it, allegedly, allegedly violate or suspend natural laws. And the reason I threw that in there is because the Bible warns us about false Christs, false prophets, who will claim to work miracles, but they're called lying wonders. And of course, we see you know, some evidence of that back in the Old Testament times in Exodus 7 with the advisors to Pharaoh. When Moses did miracles, they did something that 
at least appeared to be the same. Matthew chapter 24, uh, verse 24, false Christ, false prophets. 2 Thessalonians 2, you know, 9 through 12, talks about lying wonders. Uh, similarly, uh, Matthew chapter 7, interesting passage, Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. In fact, Brian, do you want to go ahead and read that for our listeners? Absolutely. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Yeah, and Brian, it's an interesting uh, contrast, if you will, between people who at least claimed to cast out demons, claimed to done you know many mighty wonders in the name of Jesus, but did not have a relationship with Jesus, never had a relationship with Jesus. And hence, I would infer from that, whatever they were doing was not, you know, truly miraculous, you know, given by uh, Jesus, if you will, you know, through the Holy Spirit. So once again, uh, alleged. Uh, and of course, we have to keep that, that in mind and keep that in mind as we start uh, answering our questions. Yeah, you know, someone might ask, well, okay, so generally speaking, a supernatural thing. <laughs> purpose you know why well as you kind of look through the pages of scripture generally speaking there are kind of two purposes the the first purpose and in some ways maybe the primary purpose uh served to if you will validate the credentials or the claims uh that a particular person was indeed speaking for god empowered by god you know giving a thus saith the lord kind of you know revelation and then the you know the miracle would you know validate that that claim was true. Uh, we see that with Moses appearing before Pharaoh, uh, Exodus chapter four. Uh, likewise, we see it in the first gospel sermon, uh, Peter preaching in Acts two verse twenty-two, where he says, "Men of Israel, hear the words, hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you with or by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Uh, somewhere passage over in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 3 and 4, uh, talking about the New Testament uh, apostles and prophets, which says in part, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So, primarily, purpose of miracles to, if you will, validate the credentials of someone speaking for the Lord. Uh, secondarily, uh, particularly in the New Testament, we see that miracle working abilities, or what's sometimes called gifts of the Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit, given to strengthen uh, and establish the early church. Brian, got another passage for you, if you don't mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Here it says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in tongues edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. 
I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Thank you, Brian. And if our listeners were kind of paying a special attention to the term edify, edification um, occurs, you know, multiple times in, in that particular passage. And so what you have within the early church, certainly, um, before they had the written New Testament, especially, you know, you had people going around like Paul and Peter, you know, the, the other apostles um, and, you know, Holy Spirit inspired prophets providing verbal direction to the people. Uh, and confirming them with miracles, you know, provide uh, as they were also, you know, writing letters, you know, to provide written direction. And so they had some revelation directly that way, uh, but also these gifts to help, uh, you know, uh, confirm, strengthen, and edify, you know, the believers, you know, while things were being revealed, so to speak. So, you know, two primary reasons. Now, I think where a lot of our questions, Brian, uh, focus on uh, involves whether or not such is to be expected as a commonplace occurrence today. You know, miracles, gifts of the Spirit, uh, ongoing revelation, uh, speaking in tongues, raising the dead, you know, etc. Now, I might backtrack here for just a moment. When you hear the word miracle... Uh, Brian, I think some of our listeners may have heard it used in kind of, I don't know, I, I might call it a loose sense, or any sort of, you know, wonderful event, or an improbable event. You know, some people might refer to the miracle of life, or the miracle of birth, or after some sort of horrific event, you know, you might hear the phrase something like, it's a miracle, more people, you know, didn't uh, die, you know, in that fire, or um, it's a miracle, you know, certain houses, you know, didn't get blown away by the hur hurricane, etc. But in the from a biblical perspective, a biblical and a supernatural perspective, many Christians today do claim that such miracles are continuing. Um, notably, Pentecostals, uh, Charismatics, Catholics, uh, and to some degree, uh, Mormons. Um, I found it interesting, Brian, out on the uh, Wikipedia website under the miracles entry that they have under Wikipedia or on Wikipedia. Uh, those claims are made by non-Christian groups as well. Uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Islam, and even, interestingly enough, some modern Jewish groups. So, what do the scriptures say about the ongoing nature of the miracles? Were they like a permanent sort of fixture of the church? For all time? Or was it a temporary limited thing? Well, there is one special passage uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is sandwiched right in between uh, chapter 12 and chapter 14, all of which is dealing with, you know, supernatural miracles, gifts of the Spirit. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and focus especially on verses 8 through 12, you will find that miracles were temporary. Uh, verse 8, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, in, in contextually miraculous knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. 
Verse 11, when I was a child, I spake as a child, understood as a child, thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know just as I also am known. Verse 13, and now abide, or what remains, faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest is love. So real dense. Let me, let me tease it apart just briefly. So Paul was instructing the Corinthians. Yeah, these, these gifts are important. Yes, these gifts need to be handled properly, correctly. But at the end, they're going to go away. They're a temporary thing. So stop squabbling over them. Uh, they're childish kinds of things, infancy kinds of things. But at some point, we will be, quote unquote, growing up. We will be becoming a man. And these things will go away when that which is perfect has come, which we understand to be referring to the revelation or the written writing down or the collection of all the letters that were inspired and written into what we now know of as the New Testament. Uh, some people may think this refers to, well, this is when Jesus comes again at the end of the world. But that doesn't seem to fit to say that the church for thousands of years is going to be acting in a childish way. Hmm. That seems odd. Also, verse 13 doesn't fit. You know, now abides faith, hope, love. When Christ returns, you know, faith and hope are going to go away because, you know, they'll be replaced by sight. And yet Paul is saying when these temporary things go away, faith will remain, hope will remain. Obviously not referring to Jesus' second coming. Anyway, all of which is to say, uh, our miracles performed today in general, like in terms of you know the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know speaking in tongues, raising the dead, modern day revelation, we would say First Corinthians thirteen would say no, no, not occurring today. Uh, Brian, any other introductory remarks before we launch out into some questions? Yeah, good summary. Appreciate that. You know, I was thinking as you were going through this. We know, as you touched on, that people can claim that miracles still happen today or people can perform miracles today. But, you know, if you really dive into how someone would be able to perform miracles today, well, they would have had to receive the power from Jesus himself or the apostles, you know, would have had to lay hands on them, as we see like in Acts chapter 8 where it shows and it even mentions in verse 17, you know, they laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit, verse 18, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. And of course, he was trying to buy that power, if you will, and of course, he was rebuked by Peter. But, so, you know, as you touched on, Jeff, spiritual gifts have ceased, that's pretty uh, evident with 1 Corinthians 13. There are no longer apostles, so there's nobody to lay hands on you or I or anybody else to give them the power to be able to perform miracles. So anyone who claims to have the ability cannot be telling the truth. And, you know, if they claim to be able to do so, ask them to raise somebody from the dead. And, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, you know, it, like if they try to heal somebody that has a limp, uh, you know, a limp or a, a lame leg or something, and, and they're unable to do so, uh, they, they might claim that person doesn't have enough faith. Well, a dead person can't show faith, but yet we see people, as you mentioned, Jeff, were raised from the dead. So just say, you know, hey, show us, show us if you have this power. They're not going to be able to, right? By their fruits, you're going to know them, as we see in Matthew 7. So anyhow, uh, people can claim whatever, but we can prove pretty quickly that they're, they're not telling the truth. 
And, and that's a good point that, that you make, um, especially in the sense that there are some alleged miracles that are, I would say, easy to fake. Now, speaking in tongues, classic example, right? You know, just speaking gibberish, etc. You know, true pr proof of the pudding, so to speak. Give someone whose arm has been severed <laughs> yeah. a new arm, right? Yeah. Uh, or that has so atrophied that it is, you know, completely, you know, withered up. Or as you're indicating, even raising the dead. And the... Those are not popular modern day miracles that, that people, you know, profess to do because they're uh, easily, I guess I would say, debunked. Right. All right. So with all that understood as introduction, uh, we've got, uh, I think, Brian, I think you said eight questions. Well, but... actually 12 questions. Yep. 12 questions? Yep. All right. Some of them are pretty well... short, so we won't worry our audience that we're going to take forever. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Let's get into it then. Okay. First question for you from Steve. When did the 12 disciples begin ministering and performing miracles themselves, such as healing and casting out demons? Was it during or after Christ's ministry on earth? It definitely was during Christ's ministry, and we know that from Luke chapter 9. So if those who are listening have your Bible handy, just turn over to Luke chapter 9, and let's just take a look at verses 1 and 2. And so in verse 1, it says, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So we see there is when the first time we read about Jesus during his ministry, giving them this power and sending them out. And then if you go over to Luke chapter 10, we see that there was sort of a second round that Jesus sent out of 70 disciples. So Luke chapter 10, verse 1, After these things the Lord appointed 70 others also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And then Jesus goes on to tell them in verse 8, Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. And then finally, after they had gone out and they returned, Notice what they said in verse 17. They said, or it says here in verse 17, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And so I want to just talk real quick about that term, in your name. So when they healed anyone, they did it in the name or by the authority of Jesus Christ. So they themselves should not take credit or in any way I'm not even so sure, Jeff, they could have healed if they didn't say in the name of Jesus based on our examples. But anyhow, the key was that it was only through the power, if you will, that Jesus gave them that they were able to heal. Uh, Acts chapter 3 is an example. Here you read in that chapter about a man who was lame from his mother's womb, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. So here's an example of people who would go through that gate. They've seen this man there for years. They knew he was legitimately crippled, so it wasn't something that could be faked. And, but he was healed in the name of Jesus. So if you go to verse 6 of Acts chapter 3, Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so if you continue reading on, that's exactly what happened. He was immediately able to walk. So anyhow, just wanted to mention that because uh, even though Jesus gave them this power and he sent them out, it was important that they make sure that everyone understood. We see the same with Paul. It was not them. It was Christ working through them. 
Yeah. Well, and to add a little bit to that, you know, you can easily see that now connected back to the message. You know, talk about the, you know, the coming, you know, the, the kingdom of heaven and go out and preach. And when you do and you're healing people, say, hey, this this is being done, you know, in the name of this, you know, Jesus of Nazareth as, you know, God's son of God, uh, the Messiah, etc. So once again, sort of to confirm that the people preaching, teaching, whatever, were indeed endorsed and recognized by God by suddenly turning around and, as you said, casting out a demon, curing disease, uh, etc. Yes, indeed. And uh, good information in the scriptures that help us to clearly understand what's going on here. Jeff, the next question for you comes from Gunther, and he says, I know that Jesus is the Son of God, but back then during his time, how did the people know for sure that he was the Son of God? He goes on to say, I know he never sinned and was perfect, and I hate this thought that I had, but I just need an answer. Could Satan do everything right? Do miracles, raise people from the dead, and lead people to God and say that he was the Son of God, so that people would believe in him, claiming that he is even though he isn't would that be possible for him to do yeah that's kind of an interesting thought that you know the more you think about the more it's kind of hmm, odd the way so the way i interpreted what he's saying is could satan have picked out some random individual and somehow convince him that he was the son of god somehow miraculously give this mere mortal you know, miracle working ability, blah, 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 uh, to convince, to falsely convince the Jews, ah, here's the Messiah. Not really. You know, here's the son of God. Not really. You know, he's speaking for God. Not really. And Satan is behind the scenes kind of like a, like a puppeteer. So a couple different thoughts. I guess the first thought is, well, can Satan perform miracles? At the very least, the answer would be yes. Uh, for example, if you like read in uh, Job, for instance, you know, Job chapter one, you know, God gives Satan special permission to do some things all in one day <laughs> to Job. We also see Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses nine through 12. Brian, you want to go ahead and read that one for our listeners? Uh, yes, here it says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Thank you, Brian. So this passage talks about lying wonders, powers, signs, etc. So possible? Yes. Which brings us sort of to the next level. So is it you know, is it possible, is it reasonable that Satan, who is in some cases described as the great deceiver, the arch enemy of mankind, could pick an ordinary person and fake him as the son of God? <laughs> I would say no, because that would require some, some special things. First and foremost, God would have to permit it, right? Uh, you know, I mean, we see you know, God speaking from heaven, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, at Jesus' baptism, and later on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. So, first of all, you know, God would have to allow Satan to pull off this grand hoax, right? And that's just not reasonable, right? Also, we're talking about fulfilling, at least according to some scholars, over 300 Old Testament prophecies 
about the coming Messiah. Not reasonable. The other thing, Brian, that I find interesting is Satan would be teaching through this man that people need to be loyal to God, that they need to obey God, uh, that these high moral standards of conduct that Jesus revealed to humanity. And would it make sense that Satan, the deceiver, the destroyer, the arch enemy, would be doing that? No, I just, sorry, it doesn't make sense. Um, now, if someone's interested in learning more about, you know, Satan or the devil uh, at our website under D or devil, I mean, you can certainly, you know, learn more about that. You know, Satan may be powerful, uh, certainly highly influential across, you know, countless billions of people on the planet, you know, indirectly through means. Um, but he does have his limitations. Yeah, that's right. I, in fact, I never even really thought about that last point you made. I can't imagine Satan would want to promote righteousness, right, in any way. So to convince people, like you said, to be Jesus, well, you would have to. Well, you know, it might make for a great plot for a movie coming out of Hollywood, <laughs> but uh, yeah, not reasonable. So, so Brian, we get uh, Gabriel has submitted the next question for you. Did Jesus perform miracles as God or as man through the power and work of the Holy Spirit? I've heard both sides. Uh, I've heard it say it was God. And I guess by God, he means innately through Jesus being deity and doing his own, using his own power, so to speak. And others say that he couldn't perform, could not perform any miracle until the Holy Spirit came upon him when he was made in the likeness of man. Others say that he is peccable. I guess I'd have to look that word up, since they use Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8, and Hebrews 4, verse 15, talking about Jesus setting aside his divine powers, which he then means he can be truly tempted, which is right. There's a lot, there's a lot baked into that one. There is, yeah. In fact, this word peccable, I, I'm wondering if he means, uh, or, or is talking about the opposite of impeccable, right? I, I don't know. But yeah, it's, I'm not, I don't know about that word so much as to, other than to say, I think in this particular case, he's talking about, yes, he mentioned, you know, Jesus setting aside his divine powers. And there are some that believe that when Jesus came to this earth, that he totally gave up his deity and divinity and was only a man and that was it. And so it's fair to ask, and certainly we want to see what the scriptures say. So one thing that we see, though, as we look at the ministry of Jesus, is that any time that he performed miracles, he did so as himself, if you will, as part of deity while he was a man on earth. And so if we go over to Philippians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 5, we're told that he took the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men. But it doesn't say anything in that section about him giving up his divinity when he did so. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. So in the flesh as a man, he was subjected to temptation, as we see, for instance, in Matthew chapter 4, you know, after he had fasted 40 days and nights and was hungry. Satan came to him when he was the most vulnerable and tried to commit, uh, tried to get him to commit sins of, you know, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. And of course, Jesus refuted him with scripture and did not give in to any of that. And he proved basically that it was possible to remain sinless. So that was as a man. 
And, you know, it's kind of like Jeff, when we talk about the Godhead, for instance, you know, it's difficult really for all of us probably to grasp the concept of Jesus being a man and deity at the same time. And I think sometimes it's difficult because people think, well, how could he really have been tempted? I mean, if he was deity, would it really have been uh, tempting to him? Well, the Bible says it was. We just read where it says, in all points as we are yet without sin. So once again, understand that it's difficult to grasp. If we look at John chapter 1, of course, if you start in verse 1, it talks about, in the beginning was the Word, and Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that's talking about Jesus. And then if you go down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we don't see anywhere where the Holy Spirit assisted Jesus when he performed miracles. The Bible does not say he performed miracles through the Holy Spirit. And the reason why is that he was still deity. He didn't need assistance from the Holy Spirit. And he was still part of the Godhead along with the Holy Spirit. And then, you know, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit after he departed. And so when you think about Jesus telling those in John chapter 15 and verse 26, he says, when the helper comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Well, what was the Holy Spirit testifying? Well, that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. And as Jeff pointed out in his intro, one of the reasons for miracles, signs, and wonders was to show that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. And so anyhow, whether he was performing miracles uh, or whether it was confirming who he was, uh, or, or what if it was for, if it was to prove who he was, we see here that Jesus had that power. It was not something he gave up. And so anyhow, hopefully that answers Gabriel's question. Yeah, as you were uh, talking, I looked up the word peccable. Interesting term I'd not encountered before. Basically, it's capable of sinning. Ah, interesting. Right? And and hence, you know, with Philippians chapter 2, Hebrews 4, you know, did did he, you know, quote unquote, set aside his divinity, deity, or his divine powers so that he could be tempted, you know, to make uh, himself peccable, capable of sinning? Right, like exactly. Well, and you know, in some ways, and you know, I don't want to throw in a a major, you know, go off on a dirt tangent or side road here, um, but in some ways, Jesus, while remaining deity remaining divine, of course, human, uh, you know, the, the humanity part had, I don't know if I want to say it had some limits. I mean, Jesus could not be all places at all time, you know, omnipresent, right? Uh, there are some things that when he was in the flesh that only God the Father knew that Jesus did not. So, you know, some constraints, if you will, but still fully deity and fully humanity, which is honestly a, a hard concept for, for us to grasp. Definitely is. It's fine. Okay, so next question comes from Kurt. Kurt says, I have heard from a brother in Christ who believes that God does not heal people who ask for healing. He says that God does not perform miracles anymore, but does have providence. I'm not sure if there is a Bible answer for this. Please help me sort this out. Thanks. Yeah, and that's an interesting one because, you know, as we mentioned in the introduction, 1 Corinthians 13 certainly says that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, which I think there were like seven, uh, including, you know, healing, uh, physical diseases, et cetera, were temporary uh, and, you know, have ceased. 
Now, at, while that is certainly true, you know, that still allows God, you know, via his, you know, sovereign will to do whatever he deems is, you know, important to be done. You know, we're certainly not going to constrain God and say, well, God can't do X. Um, there's also something uh, that we often refer to as God's providence. That in some ways, you know, God directly or via angels in ways we are not aware of, you know, working behind the scenes. Um, and there's also maybe a, a third sense in that, you know, God-given abilities uh, that are given to humanity for learning, discovery, um, surgical techniques, uh, medicines, etc. So is it, you know, appropriate to pray uh, that if it's God's will that someone be healed? You know, certainly. Uh, are you uh, asking for the power to perform a miracle? Well, that would not be in harmony with the scriptures. But certainly expressing, you know, concern about uh, family members, fellow Christians, etc. Uh, would indeed be legitimate. Now, now, this concept of providence is, is kind of a, a difficult one to grasp. We do have some limited information on our website under P uh, for providence. Brian, you want to add anything to that? Uh, just one quick thought, and that is, yeah, I, I appreciate the point you made. You know, when you think about illness especially, so we're told to pray, we're told to pray for others. No doubt God is blessing them uh, at times by healing them and so forth. Now, in our eyes, well, that's a miracle. You know, they had terminal cancer, and, and it's in, you know, remission. Yeah, no doubt God may have uh, blessed them, if you will, and healed them. But this is different than what we read about in the New Testament in the sense that whenever somebody performed a miracle, it was obvious, it was evident, like that man that was lame for all those years and now he could walk. That was a very visible, tangible way to say, yes, a miracle was performed. But if somebody's healed of an illness today, we can't necessarily say, A, it was God that did it, B, it was a miracle. We wouldn't really know. So we just want to be careful with that because it's all too easy to throw that term around, as you said in your intro. Oh, there's been a miracle that more people died in this fire. We don't know that it's a miracle, so we want to be careful. Good point. Okay, next up, uh, Daniel asks, can a miracle produce a genuine faith? Yeah, I think the key word there is genuine. And we do know, just starting with faith in general, that it definitely, miracles definitely, as God intended, produced faith in many in the first century. So we, you know, see, we were talking about that example of this lame man that Peter healed in the name of Jesus. And if you keep reading in that section in Acts chapter 3 and verse 8, it says, so he leaping up stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Then Peter talks about this man's faith in verse 16. So if you go down to verse 16, he starts here, Peter's talking about Jesus, and he says, And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So certainly that man that was healed, and I wouldn't be surprised if several who knew who he was and saw it also had faith. Now, it's possible that somebody could see that, they could believe in Jesus, but it could still be kind of short-lived. So then would we call that genuine? Um, you know, so I think all of us probably have seen examples over the years of, you know, kind of like the parable of the sower. You have that seed that falls on stony ground. You know, it's synonymous with somebody who hears the God's word and they're enthusiastic and they receive it and they have faith. 
But there are things like the cares and tribulations of this world or the riches and appeals of this earth, and they fall away. And so that person, you might say, well, they didn't have a genuine faith. Well, maybe it was genuine, and then they fell. So anyhow, it's, it's always it's hard to know, I guess, is the point, if it creates genuine faith. But once again, the key is that, you know, they can turn back to the Lord and repent. They could still certainly believe in Jesus and in God and the gospel, but just not be obedient to it. So anyhow, uh, once again, you know, he's asking about genuine faith, and certainly miracles did cause some to believe in God. Well, and even in New Testament times, you know, Jesus would work miracles, and even the Pharisees would uh, acknowledge that. But did it produce genuine faith? Well, for some it did. For the Pharisees, no. <laughs> even seeing miracles. And, you know, there's kind of perhaps a lesson for us today, you know, with people that might say, well, you know, I'll believe if I see a miracle, right, it's like mm, God doesn't work that way, <laughs> and the, and that's the point of faith, right? So, yeah. Yeah, well, exactly, uh, and in in some ways, you know, there faith can be certainly based on reasonable evidence, but if you you know explicitly see, well, you know, Jesus as Paul did, it's like, well, okay, you you don't have faith in Jesus, you actually saw him, <laughs> right. Uh, and actually saw him performing, you know, miracles, you know, in the in New Testament times. Yes. So I take I think that uh, brings us to the next one. It does. The next one is from Don, and Don says, "What were the seven miracles of Christ that were performed on the Sabbath, and what were what were their significance?" So I did a little bit of research, and yes, there appear to have been seven uh, times that Jesus performed a miracle that happened to be on the Sabbath. And generally speaking, uh, not in every account, but in most of the accounts, uh, in some ways it was to confirm that Jesus not only had miracle working ability, but that he was also deity and was able to do these things on the Sabbath in many ways at odds with the religious uh, ruling elite like the Pharisees who saw, you know, within the Ten Commandments, I think it's commandment number or if I remember correctly, uh, you know, honor the Sabbath, you know, do no work on the Sabbath. And they tried to leverage that to say Jesus was sinning by, quote unquote, working on the Sabbath, sinning by performing a miracle, which to my mind just kind of doesn't make any sense, right? But so Don asked, what are the seven? So let me just kind of quickly run through the list. Uh, he, he heals, uh, Jesus heals uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 29, who was sick with uh, fever, got up, was healed, got up, and started serving them. Uh, number two, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, Mark chapter 3. And, and once again, with Pharisees present, they were trying to catch him, if you will, sinning. Uh, and of course, in that context, and some of the others, you know, Jesus tried to challenge their thinking. Uh, by asking them whether it was against the law of God to do good or to do evil, to save a life or kill on the Sabbath. Uh, and to do that, to answer that, basically perform the miracle, healing the man with a withered hand. Uh, number three, uh, healed a man that was born blind. You remember the account, uh, Jesus spat on the ground, made like a, a mud paste, put that on the man's eyes, told him to wash in the pool. Uh, and he, the man did, and Jesus could see. Uh, which in that in particular case was an interesting um, 
revealed some of the uh, uh, false assumptions that the disciples had. Was this man born blind because of sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus said, no, no, it doesn't work that way. Uh, crippled woman, uh, number four, uh, Luke chapter 13, had been disabled for 18 years. In fact, Jesus healed her on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And the ruler or the overseer of the synagogue condemned him and condemned the people. Hey, six days you can work, but don't work on the seventh. Which again, hardness of heart. Uh, number five, uh, healed a man with dropsy uh, on the Sabbath. Uh, excess fluid, uh, various parts of the body. Uh, number six, dr uh, cast out an evil spirit in Capernaum. Uh, and finally, number seven, uh, healed a lame man by the pool of Bethesda. That's John chapter five, uh, beginning with verse one, who had been lame for 38 years. Uh, and again, so the Jews questioned the guy who was healed. Well, this must be a sinner because he was working on the Sabbath. <laughs> it's like, mm, no. Um, but again, revealing the Jews' hardness of heart. So I think, Brian, in many cases, Healing on the Sabbath, sometimes even in the synagogue, was to show that Jesus had that ability not only to heal, but also to challenge their thinking about what it meant to honor the Sabbath. Yeah. Any thoughts? Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, it's interesting. In one of the examples that you went through, I remember Jesus asking them, well, you you touched on it was at Mark 3, how Jesus said, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And he used that example of you know, if some if one of you has an animal and they fall into a ditch, would you not pull it out? <laughs> you know, and of course, by pulling it out, A, you're working, B, you're doing a good work. And so I always liked how he would sort of confound people with questions that make you think, right? Like, wait, yeah, I guess that is a good work and that would be okay. So anyhow. <laughs> yep. Okay, Melvin has the next one. John chapter 6, verse 29 teaches that believing on Jesus is a work of God. Does this mean that God puts faith in a person's heart miraculously? No, nope. the Bible teaches us that faith comes by hearing the word of God and believing on our own what is said. So we see passages like Romans chapter 10, verse 10, where it says, with the heart one believes. So it's our own heart, our own brains, if you will, that allows us to believe unto righteousness, it says. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that's what generates faith, God's word, not anything miraculous. Uh, Hebrews 11, 1 gives us a basic definition of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So do you believe in what you do not see? If so, that's faith. Uh, going down to verse 6 in Hebrews 11, it's the... Uh, Hebrew writer says, without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, right? Believing in something you can't see, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So do you believe that God will reward you or that God will bless you? That takes faith. And so, you know, we do know that in the religious world, there is this false doctrine of irresistible grace and Calvinism that would have us to believe that those who have been chosen by God unconditional election, are irresistibly drawn to the Lord. They can't help it. Because they were selected by God, because they were the quote-unquote elect, they can't help but be drawn to the Lord. Well, that would be putting faith in their heart in that sense, if that were true. Well, the Bible teaches us, of course, that it's based on our own free will, and it's our choice whether or not to believe. 
And I would challenge anybody that would say God did it miraculously, because to me, you can't come to any other conclusion than that would make God unjust. If God is selecting some over others, that's partiality. And the scriptures make it very clear God is not partial in any way. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 6. You know, the Bible in, in this passage and in others teaches us, once again, that we have free will, we have choice. And so we were talking about Hebrews eleven six, but notice it says, you know, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. So once again, must believe faith. Hebrews 11, wonderful chapter. I would encourage everybody to read this chapter if it's either been a while or you haven't read it, because it lists a, a long list of men and women who performed many works based on their faith. They didn't have the Messiah. They didn't have the fully revealed word of God that you and I have today, but yet they still did what God asked them to do. They still were righteous based on their faith. And that entire chapter talks about how their faith drove them to do things and in some cases even allow themselves to be killed and sawn and all of these things because of their faith. So anyhow, uh, that's how I would answer that question. Well, and the only thing I might add, um, since you mentioned, you know, God um, would arbitrarily pick and choose uh, people under the you know Calvinism concept and then work a miracle on people to enable them to have faith. I was reminded of uh, Peter, one of his sermons, uh, Acts chapter 10, uh, verse 34, 35. Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him so there's another another verse to add into the mix yeah very good passage thanks so jeff judy asks the next question and she says or asks, did jesus perform miracles on the lost or only on believers uh, i had to do a little bit of research on this one uh generally speaking jesus performed miracles on those who had some degree of faith in him uh, in fact the phrase your faith has made you well uh, occurs, you know, several times, Matthew 9, verse 22, Mark 10, verse 52, Luke 17, verse 19. Uh, and we see a lot of people, you know, uh, reaching out to Jesus, pleading with Jesus, you know, you know please, you know, heal, heal me, heal this person, etc., indicating, you know, a degree of, you know, faith uh, that they, you know, believed that Jesus could indeed do these things. That said, I did find some exceptions. Um, first of all, uh, the first miracle he worked uh, at the wedding in Cana, John chapter 2, was done kind of quietly in the background. Uh, and, you know, one might argue, well, that was a miracle related to changing of a physical thing and not necessarily a miracle on a person. Well, okay, we'll set that one aside. Uh, we have the resurrection of a dead person, the son of the widow uh, in the city of Nain, because Jesus had compassion on her. No indication that she knew who he was, no indication that she asked him for this. He just said, or decided that he would just go ahead and do it. Uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 15. Uh, Jesus casting out demons from people who had no ability to express their belief, uh, several of those. Uh, Mark chapter 1, Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 9. Uh, there was a case, there's an interesting one, uh, where he performed miracles on people that were brought to him by others. 
uh, Matthew chapter 9, 1 through 8. He saw the faith of the people who brought the paralyzed guy, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, there's a couple miracles that uh, Jesus performed on people that didn't seem to know who Jesus was. Uh, there was the invalid at the pool in Bethesda, John chapter 5, uh, as well as the man born blind, uh, John chapter 9. Uh, and the, the most interesting one I found, Brian, uh, as you may recall, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and the mob came out to greet him, you know, Peter, you know, drew his sword, rose to Jesus' defense, cut off the ear of Malchus, uh, one of the servants of the high priest who had come out to apprehend Jesus. Jesus, in turn, you know, took the ear and, and reattached it to Malchus's head, uh, miraculously. I don't know if Malchus was a believer before, but that would probably make him a believer afterwards. So there you go. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. You're right. I mean, it's both. There were times, like I was thinking about, <clears throat> as you were going through this, Jeff, Luke chapter 7, you know, where you had that centurion who had a sixth servant. And he came to Jesus and asked Jesus if he could heal him. And, hey, I'm not worthy for you to enter my house. You know, just say the word and he'll be healed. And that's when Jesus said, you know, I haven't found such great faith in all of Israel. And Jesus healed that servant based on that centurion's faith. Um, so you have that. And, of course, like we were talking about earlier, you know, Lazarus and others who were raised from the dead. They couldn't possibly have faith in the sense that they were dead. Interesting question. Yeah, interesting indeed. Okay, next one comes from Sieti. Uh, with respect to, it uh, looks like the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 7, uh, beginning of verse 10, show Moses and Aaron doing the miracles of the rod turning into a snake and the Nile turning to blood. I know that the Bible also said that Pharaoh's magicians did the same with their enchantments. I always thought that only God could create and that Satan cannot. I know there are many scriptures that speak of God as creator, but is the scripture saying that Satan is creating life from a rod and creating blood from water? Or am I missing something? Does Satan have the ability to create? Yeah, this one's kind of similar, maybe associated with the question that you answered about Satan, right? And his powers and all of that. Right. And I've always actually found these incidents or these uh, miracles, so-called miracles, <clears throat> these uh, magicians were performing. I always kind of found it fascinating. And I remember reading an article years ago about like, well, how could they have pulled off the, you know, stick turning into a snake or, you know, water turning to blood and all that. And there's a bunch of theories. And I'm not even sure it matters in the sense that we don't need theories. In fact, we don't even know, need to know how they did it, possibly. You know, one thing that we can be certain of is that the miracles that were performed by God through Moses were genuine. And so we would have to conclude that the miracles performed by the magicians of Egypt was trickery. Why do I say that? Well, we'll get into that. So if you look at the times where they supposedly performed these miracles, we see in Exodus chapter 7, verse 11, verse 22, and then also chapter 8 and verse 7, it says that the magicians also did in like manner with their enchantments. So after Moses performed a miracle, it's saying they did so in like manner with their enchantments. Now, if you were to look up this Hebrew word enchantment, that's translated enchantments in our Bible, it means covertly or secretly. So just like a modern day magician will use things like sleight of hand and other methods to make people think they're doing something magical, when in fact it's just, you know, once again, sleight of hand or, or some other method. Now, also, if you really look into this a little deeper in Exodus chapter 8, and you, if you'll notice that when they performed these so-called miracles of bringing up frogs, that they were not able to remove them. 
And so Pharaoh had to ask Moses and Aaron to, quote-unquote, entreat the Lord to have them removed as the magicians could not do so. So we see in verse 8 of Exodus 8, it says, Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Well, once again, if these magicians could bring frogs, why couldn't they remove them? Notice also that they were not able to replicate any of the other plagues. So after the plague of the frogs, there was a plague of lice, and the magicians acknowledged only God could remove the lice, and only God could have sent that. And so in Exodus chapter 8 again, if you go down to verse 18, now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So they were lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord said. So they themselves admitted that they could not do what God had done. And as you go through the rest of the plagues, you'll, you won't read about the magicians trying to replicate that again. So anyhow, we once again would have to assume they were using deception because they certainly weren't of God, and Satan doesn't have the ability to give others the power to heal and all those kinds of things or to remove or create frogs, those kinds of things. So anyhow, as Jeff mentioned, you know, Satan did have some power to do works, such as when God allowed him to test Job, as was mentioned earlier, but the scriptures do not say that he was involved in any way with what the magicians did. And so I will say that, you know, what the magicians did do was a work of Satan in that it was evil, it was deceptive, and of course, that ties back to Satan overall. I mean, we see in 1 John chapter 3, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So in that sense, yeah, they were influenced by Satan and, and they reflected the characteristics of Satan. But Satan's powers are limited. And, you know, for one example of that, that all of us have the power over Satan to resist his temptations. He cannot force us to sin. So think about 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where it talks about God will never allow us to be tempted about what we are able, but will always provide a way of escape. Think about James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. God has given us this power over Satan, so that means his power is limited. So anyhow, to finish up here, you know, Pharaoh had free will, as we can see from his hardening his, uh, his own heart, and so did the magicians. Satan could certainly tempt them, but they themselves made the choice to deceive. He was not the power behind these supposed miracles. Jeff? You know, that's a good point. As you were talking, I was kind of reminded of something we said back in the introduction with, and as we've mentioned once or twice, you know, warnings from the uh, New Testament, from, from truly inspired people about Satan, lying wonders, false Christ, false prophets. You know, we mentioned about modern day miracles, you know, not being real. And, and yet we do have people that, you know, claim to work modern day miracles, and then they turn around and say things that are contrary to the scriptures, trying to get people to do things that, you know, are not taught within scripture because they've allegedly worked these miracles. And of course, you can see that, uh, especially with like, you know, the Book of Mormon, uh, with Mormonism as an example, uh, you know, Seventh-day Advent and Adventism, etc. So, yeah, just because people can do things that look like a miracle as we mentioned, 1 Corinthians 13, but above and beyond that, if they start telling you to do something that's contrary to the scriptures, or they want to add their own think-sos, or they want to publish their own Bible, 
Okay, watch out. Better back away from that real quick. I just thought I'd you know, throw that in there for completeness. Yeah, very good. Thanks for that. All right, Jeff, you get the very last question. And this is an interesting one talking about the potential of circular reasoning. I liked it. Um, so he says, I have a qu this is, comes from Jonathan. I have a question that some skeptics pass off as circular reasoning. It goes something like this. If we are not to look to miracles as a sign of God's stamp on something, but only to his word, then how can you defend the notion that the Bible is the word of God if it was confirmed and attested to through miracles? which is the very thing you aren't supposed to do for false prophets will even perform signs and wonders. What is a good apologetics answer against this? <laughs> yeah, interesting uh, conundrum, so to speak. So, as we've already mentioned, for starters, the Bible itself does indeed record miracles as proof that the associated prophet, uh, like Moses, for instance, uh, apostle, or even Jesus, you know, were, were legitimate spokesmen for God. And that, as we've mentioned, includes performing, you know, believers in the first century, performing gifts via the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, in the early church. But the Bible also says that those things are temporary, you know, again, as part of confirming the revealed word of God. And again, not to be expected today, along with, I might mention, ongoing prophets, apostles, revelation, new inspired books being added to the Bible. So I, th I think the Bible breaks this alleged circular reasoning by indicating, yes, indeed, in Bible times, uh, miracles occurred to confirm the person speaking, preaching, teaching was of God. These things got written down, confirmed by miracles performed by the writers, if you will. And now we have, as you've indicated, the you know written word of God that we can rely upon you know we don't need a person today saying i'm a prophet of god i'm going to perform a miracle and because of that i'm going to teach that he that believes and is baptized shall be saved for example well you don't need to do that because it's already written in the book right uh and if they add anything to the book well that's wrong if they want to take away anything from the book well that's wrong so kind of breaks the uh, the circular reasoning chain brian any other thoughts on that uh, not on that, but I will mention or just really quickly define apologetics. I'm not sure everybody may know what he said is, you know, what is a good apologetics answer for this? But for, so for those of you that may not be familiar with that term, it's just basically, you know, making sort of an argument or defending something. And so for Christians, that Christian apologetics, if you will, you would be arguing or defending the truth. And so anyhow, just wanted to kind of throw that out. Appreciate that. Before I point folks back to the website. Uh, any concluding thoughts from you on miracles or questions about miracles? Nope, uh, certainly. And, you know, as we've mentioned before, a lot of people have, um, there's a lot of claims out there. Again, Pentecostals, Charismatics, etc. cetera. Uh, but as you sort of dig into the claims and especially dig into what the Bible says, uh, you can determine that, you know, those claims just really, really don't hold water and honestly lead people astray. Uh, contrary to what the Bible says. Yeah, and you know, I, I can imagine, I can't, maybe I can't imagine, but what it would have been like in the first century to see, you know, somebody that you knew that had been lame since birth, and now they're walking and praising God. Wow, that had to make an impression, right? But 
it didn't always mean that it would lead to obedience. And I'm thinking of the example of, you know, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And the Pharisees knew he had died. He knew that he had, they had, uh, Jesus had raised him from the dead, but that didn't convince them. In fact, they wanted to kill Lazarus, put him to death again, so people would stop believing in Jesus. <laughs> it was just like astonishing, you know, that uh, once again, just shows that eh, just because you see a miracle doesn't mean it's going to lead to that genuine faith or whatever, as we mentioned earlier. Well, uh, we've mentioned Moses several times, you know, with the nation of Israel. With, you know, 10 plagues, death of the yes. firstborn, parting of the Red Sea, miraculous manna. Did that produce a saving faith in the people? Well, no. In fact, all, all the adults, I think it was over 20, died in the wilderness because of their unbelief, other than two, two out of like 600,000 people, Joshua and Caleb. So... Uh, yeah, I think that speaks a lot to, oh, we need miracles today to confirm the word. If I saw a miracle, I would believe in Jesus. Like, no, you probably wouldn't, to be honest about it. Yeah, that's all right. That's a good proof text you cite there. Well, if you'd like more information on this subject, if you go on to go to our website, BibleQuestions.org, and go under the topics menu, there's several articles and previous questions that we've answered uh, related to things like miracles. So if you go down to the uh, or choose the letter M and then go down to the section on miracles. You'll see articles and questions that have been answered about that. Uh, F for faith. And then we also have a few podcasts that might interest you that are related to this. The, there was a series that we did on Calvinism. We were talking about irresistible grace. And so if you go to our podcast page under the section of Calvinism, you'll see that series. Or if you use a podcast player, just look for episodes 83 through 89. Jeff and I walk through each of these false tenets of Calvinism and compare it to what God's Word says. There, We also did an episode on the devil, which is episode 37, and all of his attributes and everything the Bible says about him. And then finally, there was a two-part series that we did with Alan Hitchin on miracles under the miracles section in our podcast on our podcast page or episodes 67 and 68. So in that one, Alan just talked about in general miracles, false miracles, how to test for miracles, things like that. You might find that uh, good as well. So anyhow, thank you so much for listening. We hope that you'll take to heart what we said, compare what we said to God's word and make application in your lives. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.